Have you ever been crushed by the devastation of an unfulfilled dream? I certainly have. I was privileged to grow up in a wonderful and loving home, and I had this incredible, incredible relationship with my dad. And I have such precious memories of the times that I spent with my dad during my formative years, scouting and sports and family activities and vacations. And my dad was my hero. He was my mentor. He was my greatest encouragement and supporter. And as I moved through childhood and into adolescence and into young adulthood, I developed this dream because I had such a special relationship with my dad. I thought, you know, if someday, by God's grace, I ever can get married and have kids, I want my kids to experience the specialness of my dad. I want them to know their grandfather. And that dream never came to pass because my dad died at age 64 from cancer when my two oldest kids were just toddlers and my youngest child hadn't even been born yet. So when my dad died, it was more than just the loss of a father who I loved and who loved me. It was, it was the death of a dream. And for a long time, that filled me with incredible despair. I'll bet you know what that feels like. Because so often when someone who is precious to us passes away, it's natural for us to feel despair. And, and if we can recognize what that, what's that, what that is like in your life, if, you can recognize what, if I can recognize what that's like in my life, if we can get a handle on that, it gives us a glimpse of how the followers of Jesus felt when he was killed. Because the people who gathered around Jesus Oh, they loved him. They admired him. They respected him. And he was more than just a friend. He had changed them and he'd changed their understanding of God and they were convinced that he was going to change the world. They had every reason to believe that because Jesus was unique. This carpenter from Nazareth started doing public ministry at age 30, and from the very beginning, he amazed people. He miraculously healed the sick. He miraculously freed people from mental and spiritual oppression. He helped people draw close to God in a way that was so new and so inviting. And along the way, he developed this close circle of loyal friends. And so when Jesus was crucified on a Friday afternoon, it seemed to be the end of everything. For his followers, their friend, their leader, their healer, their teacher was gone, and their dream of a different kind of world in connection with God was gone. And all that was left was hopelessness. Hopelessness and despair. And then, and then on Sunday morning, reality was turned upside down because the tomb of Jesus was empty and all of a sudden, despair was replaced by hope. That long ago Sunday morning truly was the first day of a new age because in that moment, life 
and death and human connection to the God of the universe, those things were all completely redefined. And I'd like us to listen now as Ellen comes and reads to us this amazing account of Resurrection Day from the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Let's hear what God has to say to us today. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to see the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake because the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are here looking for Jesus who is crucified. He isn't here. He has been raised from the dead just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember, I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to find the disciples to give them the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they ran to him and held his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As the women were on their way to the city, some of the men who had been guarding the tomb went to the leading priest and told them what had happened. A meeting of all the religious leaders was called, and they decided to bribe the soldiers. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you. Everything will be all right. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. And their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them still doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples, new disciples, to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you so much, Ellen. That help us 
understand this story in a more personal way, I want to zero in on one of the women mentioned here at the beginning of this story. Her name is Mary Magdalene. And when she first met Jesus, she was suffering from demonic affliction. Somehow, seven different evil spirits had gained a foothold in her life, which meant that she was in emotional and spiritual mess. Now, today it's common to think of demonic affliction as a myth, but it's not. I've met people who were in bondage to evil spirits, and most often it occurs when people get involved with witchcraft or other occult practices. And I've met people like this who are in such bondage that they can't even think straight. And I've seen God set them free. Because the power of God, unleashed through prayer, always can set people free. It always breaks the power of the enemy of God. But here's something we need to think about. We don't need to be afflicted with an evil spirit to be in bondage. We can put ourselves in bondage to things like the lure of money. We can yield to the bondage of pride. We can be in bondage to our political passions or to fear or anxiety or any number of other things. And here's what we need to understand, that regardless of the cause, whether our bondage is demon-inflicted or self-inflicted, Jesus has the power to set us free. And that's what he did for Mary Magdalene. He set her free. And he restored her mind, and he restored her will, and he restored her emotions, and he restores her soul, and he restores her to the fullness of life, and he does it in an instant. It's no surprise then that she becomes a devoted follower of Jesus. And yet now, because of Crucifixion Friday, her dreams are crushed. Her healer is dead. Her friend is dead. Her her rabbi who helped her draw close to God is dead. After Friday, the future looks bleak. And she concludes there's only one more thing she can do for Jesus. She can anoint his body with oils and spices, which the Jews did as a sign of respect. And so as we heard, as Ellen read the passage on this particular Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene heads out to the tomb with another woman named Mary to perform this final task of devotion. How do you think the women might be feeling as they make that journey from town out to the tomb. I think words like grief and devastation and even shock would be pretty accurate descriptions. And yet, when they arrive at the burial site, they they face an even bigger shock because their understanding of reality begins to be transformed. They encounter this angel who says, Jesus is risen. He's no longer dead. And they don't need to take the angel's word for it. They can look into the tomb and see that the body is gone. Holy smokes. (laughs) 
Now, an empty tomb is strange enough, but there's something else really odd that doesn't make sense. The book of Luke adds an interesting element. Luke tells us that the linen burial shroud of Jesus still is there. Now, now think about that. If someone wanted to go into the tomb and steal the, the body of Jesus, they wouldn't unwrap it first and be carrying a, a naked corpse around town. I mean, that would just be weird. And so the absence of Jesus' body with the presence of Jesus' burial garments gives some credence to the angel's message that Jesus has returned to life. And so the women stand there trying, trying to take in this unexpected sight and trying to, to deal with this unexpected message from the angel. And then he says, okay, now I want you to go get this news to the disciples. And, and I have this vivid memory of myself as a brand new Christian reading this story for the first time many, many years ago. And when I got to those particular words in the passage, go tell the news to the disciples, my reaction was to go, why? Why would Jesus want to inform those guys? After all, on the last night of his life, they all abandoned him. When he was arrested and taken away, they either ran away from him or they ignored him, or denied that they even knew him. All of those guys blew it. Every single one of them. And so I read that passage and said, why doesn't Jesus give up on them and go find some better disciples? Get some new guys. Well, here's what I've learned over the years. Giving up on people is not the heart of Jesus. He's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the umpteenth chance. And I believe that when the angel says to these women, go tell the disciples, it is a message from God to those men letting them know that they will get a second chance and they don't need to live in fear of judgment for their failure because it's a new day based on a new reality and a new understanding of who God is. What a great word of healing for those disciples to hear. Word of healing and welcome. And so the women listen to the angel and then they do head back into town to tell the disciples and as they walk down the path, they actually meet Jesus in person. And this is where they begin to realize that life is not hopeless, the the, the dream is not dead because God is offering humanity a new kind of hope. Let's take a look at this in verses 8 through 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And isn't that an interesting phrase? Fear and joy mingled together. Wow. And they ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
I, I, I try to imagine this scene. Here's these women leaving the tomb, and I've I, I got to believe that they're talking excitedly as they try and figure out all of this and make sense of all of this. And, and then they round this bend, and there's Jesus himself in person. And Jesus speaks to them. And what else can they do but fall at his feet in worship? And it is interesting that as they fall at his feet in worship, they, they grab his feet. They want to touch him. And by touching him, they confirm, oh, he's not some disembodied spirit. He's not a ghost. He's flesh and blood. Jesus is alive. And in that moment, everything changes, and it brings a new kind of hope into their lives and into the lives of the world because now, for the first time, there is hope beyond the grave. There is victory over death. And if Jesus can conquer death, then he really is the Lord. If Jesus can conquer death, he is worthy of worship because he really does have the ability to forgive sins and invite people into the presence of a gracious and loving God. The fact that these two women are standing there face to face having a conversation with the living Jesus is an awesome display of the power of God. And that's why this resurrection day lies at the core of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says, if Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. What's more, we've been false witnesses about God because we testified that he did raise Jesus from the grave. And if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is futile and you still are stuck in your sins. What we celebrate here today, the resurrection of Jesus, it is an astounding historical fact and it's what makes Christianity unique. Religions are created by people who are decomposing in their graves. And Christianity is not a religion, but a unique connection with the God of heaven and earth through his living son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Easter is the first day of a new age. On this day, humanity entered into the age of the living Jesus. And so as these women speak with Jesus, as they touch him and realize he's real, everything he taught now finally begins to make sense. They understand who this Messiah is. And what's so tragic is that the Jewish religious leaders of that day are not interested in what God is doing. They're not interested in this new and life-changing message of hope. All they care about is protecting their position and their power and their perks and their prestige. So when the guards come and give this eyewitness account and they tell the priests about the angel and the empty tomb, these religious leaders resort to age-old tactics, the age-old tactics of bribery and deceit in order to try and undermine the incredible news of the resurrection. And it is heartbreaking. It is tragic. God is doing something new and wonderful in the world, and his enemies are just doing the same old thing. 
They're trying to hide God's light and God's truth and cover it over with a veil of lies because that's what the enemies of God always do. They try and fight his truth with lies. Let's take a look at verses 13 to 15. The chief priest said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. Now a key to understanding this part of the story is that these guards potentially are in big trouble. Excuse me. They were supposed to prevent Jesus' body from being stolen. And since the body is missing, whatever the reason, they obviously have failed at their assigned task. And if Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, learns what has taken place, these guards can expect some pretty severe punishment. And that fact gives the priests the leverage they need to bribe the guards to tell a false story. And I find it really interesting, they say, well, if Pilate does somehow learn about these events, we'll keep the governor satisfied, implying that the priests also will somehow bribe Pontius Pilate. And that makes sense. Pilate doesn't want the word to get out about the missing body. He sentenced Jesus to death. So a missing body would make Pilate look bad, as well as the guards. And these priests, for personal reasons, they refuse to accept the eyewitness report of the soldiers, and the soldiers accept bribe money for telling lies. And I find it just amazing at what human beings sometimes will do to protect themselves at the expense of the truth. And we can't just point the finger at these guys. We need to be honest and say, you know, it's tempting for any of us at times to ignore the truth and to engage in cover-ups in order to protect ourselves from consequences we don't like. That's one of the problems of the human condition. And so as we consider what's happening here in this story, I think it challenges us to ask a question. Are we ever willing to admit that we're wrong? Would we be willing to sacrifice our position? Would, be we, would, be we, would we be willing to even take a blow to our pride if truth demands it? What value do we place on truth? In this regard, I think of a story I heard about the Smith family. And the Smith family, oh, they were proud, upper-crust, old-fashioned New Englanders. And, and in their family line were governors and, and senators and captains of industry. And they were just filled with pride about their family tree. They decided everyone should know about their illustrious family. And so they hired a ghostwriter and researcher who would do the necessary genealogical research to flesh out their family tree, and then they'd publish this so that everyone would know about the awesome Smith family of New England. Well, there was one problem. The researcher uncovered a dirty little family secret one of their ancestors had lived a life of crime. 
He had spent most of his adult years in and out of the state penitentiary, and ultimately he had been convicted of murder, and he'd been executed in the electric chair. And when the researcher brought that news back to the Smiths, of course, they were horrified. And they couldn't leave this family member out because it would leave an obvious gap in the family tree, but, but they really didn't want a graphic description of the truth. Something needed to be done because this would be a stain on the family honor. And so the ghostwriter said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So here's what he wrote about this criminal who had been executed. George Smith occupied the chair of applied electronics at a prominent government institution. <laughs> he was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> now, on one level, I admire that because that is a really creative piece of writing. <laughs> but it was used to hide a painful truth. And as I think about that kind of thing, it occurs to me that such behavior should have no part in the place of the life of anyone who calls themselves by the name of Christ. You and I, as followers of Jesus, cannot play fast and loose with the truth. We need to make every effort to embrace the truth and live by the truth. And that is important for every follower of Jesus, and it's even more important for spiritual leaders. If pastors or elders, if we try to cling to our positions or if we try to manipulate people for the purpose of power for ourselves, if we're willing to lay aside God's truth simply to protect ourselves, then we've lost sight of our calling and our mission. My prayer is that truth would be the highest value for every follower of Jesus Christ. And what's sad is that in these priests and elders of Jesus' day, we see leaders, not just average people, but leaders who don't live like that. And in this moment, because they feel that their position is threatened, they have no regard for the truth. And their willingness to lie is a stark reminder that if God's people don't stay connected to the heart of God, then we can become sidetracked. And we can become petty and self-centered and manipulative and we can put ourselves ahead of God's purposes. And in this case what it leads to for these religious leaders of Israel is that they're actually denying God because they're denying the truth of the resurrection that God orchestrated. And the denial of that truth is so huge it means God cannot rely on them anymore. And therefore, the mission that once belonged to the Jews now is enlarged and it's redefined and it's given to the followers of Jesus as we see in the final couple verses of this passage. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, always to the end of the age. 
Now, what I just read didn't actually take place on Easter Sunday. It took place some time after that, and yet what happens in that moment is a direct result of the events of Easter Sunday and the response of the Jewish leaders to Jesus' empty tomb. And so on this particular day, the resurrected Jesus meets his disciples on a mountain and he gives them a new purpose in life. And he tells them, you're going to have a mission that extends beyond Israel because you're going to represent me, Jesus says, to the entire world. And this is an amazing, amazing message from God that no one is beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the love of God. Everyone is invited into God's family. And the mission that God gave to his disciples on that day didn't stop with them. It's been passed on to every generation of Christians, which means that we too have the privilege of telling others about the living Jesus and inviting them to become his followers. And our invitation to the world is simple. And it's based on this exhortation from Jesus. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how we take our first step of faith and get connected to God. Because when we're baptized, when we are immersed, as we go under the water and as we come out, it is a death and resurrection experience. By faith, when we are immersed, we die to the power of sin. By faith, we die to our old way of life and we're raised into a new way of life just as Jesus himself died and was raised. His resurrection gives us assurance of our resurrection. Our resurrection into a life of forgiveness and grace and into a life where there is hope beyond the grave. This invitation from Jesus always is available. So if you've never taken that step of faith, if you've never pledged yourself to God through baptism, I would want to invite you to take that connection card in your bulletin. There's a box there you can check that says baptism, and on your way out, you can place that card in one of the boxes by the door, and we would love to sit down and talk with you and help you take that step of faith. We would consider it one of the greatest privileges to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. If you've been waiting, don't wait. Take that step of faith. I love how this passage ends because it ends with what I think is the best promise of all. That when we get connected to Jesus, we have his personal assurance as he states right here in this passage, passage that he always will be with us. Not sometimes, always. Not just when life is good, always. And that's why Easter truly is the first day of a new age. It's the age of the living Jesus, the living Jesus who walks with his people day by day. And every day we have the opportunity to let the reality of that truth change us. We can let the reality of our connection with the living Jesus change the way we think. We can let our connection with the living Jesus change the way that we respond to the circumstances of life. 
we can let the living Jesus change the way we interact with others. And so through all the ups and downs of life, I want to urge you to hold on to this promise. It's the promise of Easter given to us by the living Jesus. Don't ever forget, Jesus is with you. Always. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this very special day when Jesus transformed reality. Thank you for raising him from the grave to demonstrate that you hold the power of life and death and sin and forgiveness, that you hold that in the palm of your hand and you graciously grant it to us. And I pray that we would experience each day the hope of the resurrection as we live by faith in Jesus, the living Jesus who walks with us. And we pray this now in his name. Amen.